This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Have you spent thousands of hours on books, webinars, and courses to find out how to design and develop your own dream permaculture property, but you're still stuck and feeling overwhelmed? Come and join my friends Michelle and Rob Avis and Dakota Cohen and Jeff Lawton, Mark Shepard, Richard Perkins, Ben Law, Rosemary Morrow, and a stellar lineup of more than 15 globally renowned permaculture pioneers in three days of presentations and case studies covering every aspect of designing and building a permaculture property. There will be networking, book giveaways, live music, and multiple ways for you to be one of the first to get your hands on Michelle, Rob, and Dakota's wonderful new book, Building Your Permaculture Property. The event is free, live, and online from April 23rd through the 25th. Register today for the Building Your Permaculture Property Global Summit at mypermacultureproperty.com. Hello and welcome back to the third of the monthly expert panel discussions. Now, as I mentioned in the past, each month I'll be hosting discussions and debates between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration land management, and more. Now, if you're a subscribing Patreon member, you'll also be invited to the live events and the open Q&A for listeners after the panel. Now, in today's session, I hosted a discussion on regenerative fashion with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, a nonprofit organization working to advance regenerative agriculture in Europe. Now, since these discussions are a little longer than the regular weekly episodes, I'll keep the introduction short and jump right into the introductions for our two panelists. Now, first up, we have Rebecca Burgess who is the executive director of Fibershed and chair of the board of the Carbon Cycle Institute and author of both the books Fibershed and Harvesting Color. She's a vocationally trained weaver and natural dyer. And Burgess has built an extensive network of farmers and artisans in the Northern California Fibershed to pilot an innovative fiber system model at the community scale. And our second panelist today is Aroa Alvarez Fernandez, sustainability entrepreneur who is one of the founders at Trace Collective and Trace Planet, an activist fashion brand and community organization on a mission to make the fashion industry a driver of environmental regeneration and to help communities reconnect with the products that they buy. Really quick here before we get to the panel, we had some technical difficulties while recording and lost a couple of the first few minutes of the call, so we jump right into Rebecca's answer a little bit abruptly. But the question that I asked in the lead up to this is, What does a global regenerative fashion industry look like in terms of fiber and material production? And she started by stressing the need to take care of this at a local level in order to better inform the global scale. Um, Imparting frameworks from on high could work, but really the detailed responses to ecological restoration and health um, are going to be at the community scale. We need to be able to take measurements and create modeling systems based on responses to our actions at the local level. So I see the way that the global textile community starts to see benefit and positive um, feedback loops, which would be lowering emissions in the atmosphere, restoring aquifers, enhancing biodiversity metrics. For those feedback loops to take place, we fundamentally need every community to figure out 
how to handle aquifer restoration, how to handle soil carbon sequestration in their home communities. So I guess I would say the answers are decentralization. The answers are investing in communities to create these responses at the local level and functionally to decentralize manufacturing because through the laws of thermodynamics, there's just no way we can keep up this idea of moving non-perishable goods, which we can do because currently they're non-perishable, not like the food supply. Um, we're moving them huge distances to manufacture them, but we've been doing that because we've externalized the costs of carbon. So we really do need to consider the decentralization movement, which will give brands um, kind of a bespoke selection of manufacturing centers across the world that will reflect the terroir of those regions. So I think it's going to be a beautiful future if we just kind of open ourselves up to the idea, the paradigm shift of what it means to decentralize some of these systems. I'll leave it there. <laughs> That's a great start. How about you, Aurora? Tell us what you envision as a regenerative fashion future. Yeah, um, so I think it's, uh, and hi Rebecca, it's nice to see you again. Um, I think it's, um, um, so to me, when it comes to regenerative fashion, I think there are three principles that always we need to um, take into account. One is that it actually produces positive uh, environmental outputs, you know, uh, so positive environmental impacts, and that's where we really need to go into you know, textile fibers that are at the moment the only ones that offer us these, you know, and regenerative agriculture. And then there are other two layers that really relate to what Rebecca has said, that is minimizing externalities. Uh, the moment the industry has, you know, so many, you know, some, such massive environmental externalities, and there are many ways to reduce them, but one key one is through localization and through really, you know, opening up to the beauty of like, how do more local supply chains look in the look like in the fashion industry? Um, so really minimizing externalities. And then the third one, um, using fashion as a healing tool for society, which uh, until now it hasn't been really. Um, so there is like a lot of negative dire social impacts of the fashion industry that don't rely only on worker exploitation, you know, but that relate to, I don't know, cultural appropriation and a lack of diversity and many issues. And I think, you know, when we talk about regenerative fashion, for sure, while the core is, you know, connecting it to regenerative agriculture, we also need to think about what role can such a big industry, uh, which is producing a good that is not necessary, you know, in terms of we have enough clothes in the world to go around, you know, like forever, we don't need more clothes. What role does it have to play in also healing us and bringing us back together as society? Fantastic observations there. It sounds to me that the evolution of the fashion industry in order to become more regenerative is similar to many other industries that we have that currently you know, bring a lot of problems and pollution, especially the food system and how this all relates in with farming like many of us are, are focused on now. And from there, I'd like to ask what clothing production methods from the past and from indigenous cultures can inform the global clothing industry, as well as what new technologies offer hope for responsible textile farming and manufacturing, because it seems like the two need to go hand in hand for us to be able to move forward and address the modern problems that we are seeing in this industry at large, perhaps starting with Aroa. Oh, I think Rebecca will have much more to say about this uh, because of her background and expertise. But um, so I, I think, um, 
So there is like some new technologies that definitely are relevant here, especially when it comes to um, mm, helping us really measure, you know, and leverage the latest science uh, when it comes to regenerative agriculture and, you know, giving farmers the guidelines and, and you know, and the visibility that they need because of, because of the measurement tools that we have. So new technologies have a role to play, but I think effectively is like like you say we need to look into the past and I think especially in the fashion well not especially in the fashion industry in so many industries but in fashion there is this huge conversations about innovation in the in quite bizarre ways often and it feels like we are looking to technology to save us from some problems that technology has created and uh, what we need is to change our mindsets and really understand that no technology is going to save us from unchecked consumption and through and from complete disconnection from our supply chains no so it's effectively about you know looking at what are the ways that we produce throughout like all you know like all of our history that kept a balance with nature and, and recovering those practices and, and those technologies and understanding that, you know, some things shouldn't be scaled and productivity shouldn't be maximized in all areas and that products have a price that is, that is higher and that we need to pay for. I love that response. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I, I would just second all of that and that idea that some things don't need to be maximized. Um, I was just reflecting as you were speaking about a post I saw, um, like a decolonizing post, it was a quote from a, a British um, military official who was defining nation states in Africa, places that he'd never been. He was creating new political boundaries to define those countries, um, you know, politic, tax base, etc. And in the quote, it was like, there are mountains I've never seen, there are rivers I've never crossed but I have the ability to define the future of this landscape. And um, here where I am in the, um, the Western part of the United States, um, you know, I, I work with tribal leaders who say, you know, you should read what the Pope originally said when they sent the explorers from Spain <laughs> to, um, to, the, to the, what is now North American continent and South American continent, anything they could see was the land of, it became incorporated into the land of the, of the Spanish, you know, into their, into their government. So it wasn't about knowing landscapes. It wasn't about understanding ecosystems. It was just the colonizer mind is just about appropriating what you can see, or you can put on a paper, but how do we solve ecosystem collapse with that mindset of not really being intimate with anything? And I think we have to really, that, that colonized mindset is still in things like, frankly, the Hague Index. It's still in things that tell us what sustainability is because it's measuring things from way far away and, and appropriating and extrapolating little bits of measurement across broad landscapes. It reminds me so much of the map makers from the last colonized era, this idea that you can extrapolate measurement in one thing and say, everyone's doing this. <laughs> when a cotton field can have literally different water usage and pesticide and insecticide usage from one corner to the other. There's so much variability in these systems and heterogeneity that I, I think that the indigenous heart 
of our planet. We all have that. We all have an indigenous place. We all have a place where we came from that we were connected to. Um, and some of us still have that. But those of us who are transplants, who are looking at, you know, what was the, the ecosystem's um, way of being or the way, way of being with ecosystems that worked, like here in California, it's 13,000 years of um, management of redbud and sedge and all of these plants that were used for watertight baskets and some of the dress forms. Um, and those plant species, like here's just one example. Um, there's an area north of us that you know about the California fires, right? And so you've seen these neighborhoods completely flattened in ash. Those areas in Santa Rosa, Sonoma County are areas that were historically covered like a square mile of where those Kofi home burns keep happening. They are actually in this downward slope of a huge fire corridor. And that's been known for 13,000 years. And that fire corridor used to hold dogbane, massive amounts of the fiber crop that supported fish weir development, textile development, string, rope. It's our native hemp in California. And there was literally um, the Native Americans say, well, if you wanna call what we were doing industrial, we were doing industrial production of this crop but we were allowing it to you know, reseed and rhizomatously spread. And we planted it in the fire corridor because it regenerates in those, eco, those fire ecologies. So that fiber system was literally consciously put in the wave of fire. Now for us, the colonizer mind comes in and says, let's put homes there and take up the fiber system that was indigenous. And so it's just one example of kind of the, well, if you don't pay attention to landscapes, you pay the price. And I think that, that at this point we have, um, as you're saying, like this, this need to connect, but the connection isn't just because it's a nice thing to do. I think our survival depends on it. So um, yeah, just leave it there. <laughs> well, that goes in depth to what you were talking about for your vision of a regenerative fashion world of this decentralization that is correctly adapted to its place and its resources, as well as the biological and cultural history of a place that kind of all work in harmony when done at a correct scale or even we'll not call correct, bad, good. I don't like those labels, but something that is appropriate to the unique conditions and the context of where you find it. Aroa, do you have reference to those types of things and this balance between I guess, production methods, but also this uh, idea of, of rooting the sources of your materials and the way that they're used from the way that people have interacted with them in those places historically. Yeah, um, we do. Um, and, but I must say it's really difficult uh, for us as a brand, you know, like now wearing the brand hat. Um, so at the moment, uh, we, so at Trace Collective, we only source linen from Western Europe and hemp from Eastern Europe, which are um, crops that have been grown there for like millennia uh, by, by local population. No? And linen in Europe has always been, uh, well, that's why the word linen no? comes from like, like bed linen. And, you know, linen was the fabric that we had at home and that we did at home and that we had knowledge of how to um, how to do if you wanted clothes, you had to grow linen in your house uh, in the past in many areas. 
Um, so um, we do have kind of like um, talk to farmers and make sure that there was this consistency across, you know, like history and the practices being used. But what we find really as a barrier is um, that we haven't been able to find um, uh, local systems uh, that, you know, take, you know, grow the fabric and connect to the meals and give us the, the end outputs that um, that we need in the quantities that we need as a fashion brand. So we also work with like other meals and check with them kind of like farmer integrity and like how farmers are growing and to make sure that we are avoiding like industrial uh, farming. Uh, but so it's, it's quite challenging. I guess um, what what is quite interesting and came to my mind as Rebecca was speaking is that this um, very local quality of sustainability that we tend to forget. And I think that is a trap that we really fall into in the fashion industry and, and us, you know, in, on, uh, in the lack of, of a better system where, you know, we have these big certifications that at the moment are the, the only the only tool that most brands have to understand what is it that they are buying. Uh, but obviously those certifications leave out so much of the local context of, you know, like what each region and each bioregion needs and like what is sustainable there and what should be grown there. You know, it's not only about growing organic cotton, but like it's where, where are you growing it? Um, and, and yeah, I think that's like a really interesting challenge that where, I mean, effectively you see that you, you need to build those close relationships with farmers and get that visibility and like really connect to those, to those origin stories. Um, if you want to go deep into what is sustainable and what is regenerative and into understanding the impact of your, of your, of your production. And I must say for us, we are like only halfway there right now. It's really complex. I'm really glad how you touched on it there. It's like, Fashion is a very large and multifaceted industry. And so far, I've kind of been talking about it as if it were one thing. But there are so many steps along that line from the farmers to the distributors and all of the processes of manufacturing before it actually makes it to retail and the consumers themselves. And so let's start back at the beginning a little bit and talk about how, like many other commodity farm products, we're often told that the only fiber production business models that are viable are these large scale operations, much like commodity farming of food as well. Do you have any examples of small scale fiber producers that are respectably profitable? I know both of you kind of work at that smaller scale, maybe starting with Rebecca. Well, you know, it's interesting. It depends on the fiber. Um, and I was actually just having this um, reflection with someone who works at a, a large uptake brand, global, <laughs> global brand yesterday. And I was reflecting on cotton systems because um, you know, in the United States, um, a lot of folks are like, well, why, why are all the farms so big for, for cotton? <laughs> and you know, one of the key, if not in the top three reasons for why the scale is what it is, is because that the cotton farmers in the US are competing with cotton farmers in countries that have very different relationships to hierarchy and labor and um, the United States, I mean, we, we have gone through so much in cotton systems and it shows up in um, the suppression of an, a whole community of people and it's still 
unfurling, like that, that use of slave labor, the, the effects of that we are living today. Um, and so cotton, um, to me, the fact that it's gone to the scale it has is because those growers need to use mechanized equipment. There's very few small scale growers who can remain effective because of the labor situation and that we're competing with countries whose moral arc of justice hasn't been fully expressed yet. <laughs> and we're still in our journey of that expression of justice coming home to roost. It keeps its layer and layer and layer. We keep having an expression of justice and a retraction and an expression and a retraction. And that shows up in the agricultural systems. And so I think part of the reason we're so large in the US with our cotton production is due to the fact that we're competing with countries that have been suppressing communities <laughs> still in many cases and that handpicking cotton is still something that's very much done in other parts of the world. Um, sometimes it's done in a just system, but in many cases it's done in an unjust system. So I have a different relationship with cotton and scale because of the history in the United States of slavery. Um, I also would say though that a small scale, most of the fiber producers that are profitable are using like sheep, for instance, as part of an organic crop, food crop rotation, or they're using sheep in their vineyard systems. There's very profitable wine and food production systems that can layer fiber producing animals. Those are profitable. You don't need a lot of animals to do that. It's more of like an expansive market garden who might mow down their cover crop with a handful of sheep who are then you know, sheared and maybe some of that yarn makes it out to the farmer's market. But the engine of the economy for a small scale grower, at least in our region, remains the food system. And it's the specialty crops that continue to be the bread and butter of the agricultural community. And the animals are part of an ecological function tool. So I guess I don't have as much, it's hard for me to say like, oh, cotton should just be small scale and hand-picked because our country has been there and it's not pretty. So I just, I don't have the same, like scale to me is all about how is justice being served for land and people. And maybe our questions around scale, you know, start getting more nuanced. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very good example there. Yeah, um, on our side, um, so we do know of like farmers that are profitable and making it work um, small scale with flax um, in, in, in Europe. So I know of examples in uh, Western Spain, sorry, I always get my East and West confused, Western Spain and uh, also in the North of France. Um, and, but like, it's really challenging and, and it's something that they, they emphasize all the time. It's, it's just really challenging. And it's because I think also when it comes to our governments, our governments and, you know, government incentives are not incentivizing market uh, farmers to stay small. So very often in many European countries, um, incentives are given according, you know, like according to the amount of land that you have, which could make sense in a way, but then what that means is that farmers uh, who, who have very small farms actually qualify for almost no support and they are always under pressure to sell their lands uh, to others who are like expanding. So like, it's definitely like, we know of examples that are working and but our, our concern right now is like, how do we protect those and how do we replicate those? Because there's a very clear tendency 
because of markets and governments to, to disappear. Uh, and it's just, and I think there's also, sorry, just one last thought. Um, uh, at least in the cases that I know, there's also a part of losing um, cultural heritage with the, with a generational change. Uh, so it's, you know, it's really common um, that just newer generations don't want to work in the farms and, and we are losing that knowledge that, for example, when I think of Western um, Spain and, and linen production there, it's very like, an artisan knowledge where they go through all the steps of like flax transformation into linen and that is being lost because um yeah because no no young people want to take on that trade because it's not where you can make most money now you had mentioned smaller scale flax operations being profitable can you give me an idea of the scale that you're referring to mm, no not really in terms of uh in terms of, of land size, yeah. Of land size, I don't know on the top of my head, but I could tell you afterwards. But I know sure. from talking to them and no, no, on the top of my head. I'm just thinking it's probably going to be of interest to the farmers who are on this, mm. this call. It's something I can follow up on afterwards. Fantastic. And Rebecca, do you have similar examples? Because you had mentioned about uh, smaller scale operations being profitable with leather and especially animal products. Are you also utilize, or have you seen the utilization of waste products into novel or new forms of fibers? For example, unfortunately, the panelist who wasn't able to be here, Umaima, has been pioneering uh, pineapple and banana fibers as waste products from the industries in Bangladesh. Have you seen potential in these types of products in, in your area? Mm, we're getting there. Um, yes, I, I think uh, the the technology company that we are excited about, um, who's circling around California and other parts of the world, who has a biorefinery model, um, it's AgriLoop. And I'm sure there's other companies too that are looking at this model where they, yeah, so you can use banana, pineapple, um, and those are not uh, crops that work in our location because we're a more temperate climate. But um, yes, the flax toe, so the shorter staple flax, um, we're looking at how that can be turned into um, maybe even a filament, but possibly just a, a, a well-spun um, uh, yarn. Uh, it would, it, it's, it's a very tricky process because you need things not to pill, not to break. And so these shorter fibers that you see in so many food crops, it's, it's a real science to get that to be a durable textile. Um, so the, the systems we're looking at are if cannabis focused hemp growing, it creates very bushy crops, but that's primarily where the American hemp industry so far has gone. Of course, we've overproduced cannabis producing, you know, we have flooded these markets, but those who end up retaining in the, the hemp market, um, there's definitely ways that we could use those, even those bifurcated stems and through certain systems, those shorter staple fibers from hemp or flax could be used into yarn development. It will take more technology um, because we don't have a lot of fiber focused hemp growers. I can't even, I mean, maybe there's some on the panel that I haven't seen that the economics work in the US for people just to grow hemp for fiber. Um, we're still trying to figure out all the different ways. You need value added systems because in so many ways for hemp to work, um, for instance, like you, it's not just the textile manufacturing systems you need, you need to understand how to 
create the herd economy? And is the herd going into animal bedding? Is it going into hempcrete or building? And all of those systems kind of, all the value addition systems have to be invested in kind of at once for the farmer to be able to make use of all the products that come off that crop. It's a dynamic crop. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I think it's just a matter of time before we see more agricultural material that wouldn't traditionally be used for a textile being used. It's just an investment issue <laughs> more so than anything else. Sure, the infrastructure has to be easy for the producers to access because if they're pretty much any point of friction or difficulty in the process is going to marginalize it as a waste product the way it has been up until now, I'd imagine. Yes, yes. Um, and we hope that um, when we have these kind of investment conversations about building up our manufacturing sector in our country that people will take textile into consideration because um, it's, it's just, it's a wonderful part, a sector of the economy that we could be breathing more life into. Um. <laughs> okay, well, it seems to me that the difficulty here is making the argument or making the case that this can compete with the synthetic fibers and especially dyes and other processes like um, nylon and acrylic and others that have flooded the market and become the cheap alternative that is really fueling fast fashion and these other symptoms of the industry at large that are difficult to compete with in this decentralized and bespoke industry that we're somewhat advocating for here. Can you make the case for not only why this is important on a ecological, uh, I guess, aspect or perspective, but what are the other benefits that can help to bring meaning behind the higher costs of a better way of producing all types of fibers and clothing? Starting with Aroa. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, it's, right now we need to completely change how our textile pie looks like, you know? Uh, at the moment, uh, I think like latest data from textile exchange is that 63% of global textile produc production is synthetics, uh, which is insane, no? It's like um, we are using non-renewable resources to produce fabrics that are going to stay there forever kind of and damage all across the supply chain. Um, and so, I mean, are there other arguments besides the environmental one? Um, I think the environmental one is the most important one, <laughs> but uh, I think there is a lot to speak about, you know, just building this connection with the story behind the product that you buy, you know? And I think just put it in a very blunt way, uh, I like, I personally don't want to wear plastic, you know? It's like, I mean, and, and it's like quite, basic and we've gotten used to it, but just wearing a polyester t-shirt uh, as opposed to wearing a, a, a cotton t-shirt or, or like a wool jumper, uh, it's a completely different way on how it interacts with your skin, the, you know, just the, the, and the connection that you create with it. So I think there's also like this human, uh, you know, not only on the, on the touch, but also this human storyline of well, you're buying a product, this product has a story. You can be buying something that is like completely man-made, completely opaque, completely polluting, or you can be buying something that you can trace back, hopefully, you know, like if we get to a degree of transparency in the fashion industry, that um, that, that, that you can trace back to, to a farmer, you know, and, and, to, the, and to the land uh, that is around you. 
and that when you don't need it anymore, will go back into that land. So obviously, I think the environmental argument is the most important one, but there's also this really important part of reconnecting with the products that we buy and understanding how, in a way, we, you know, like we are, we're only a small part of the supply chain, right? There's so much that happens before us and so much that happens after. And, and our decision of what kind of product do we purchase creates that, so, that story. Um, yeah. So just to reflect, I love everything that you've said and just to reflect on the question about affordability or how do we compete? I mean, is mm. that, okay. Well, I've been thinking a lot about the transformation of this industry into something that includes service and experience. And instead of just pumping out goods, which has already been mentioned, like we're flooded, um, we're over-consuming, we have surpluses that we aren't even, there's inventory surpluses, there's um, consumer goods that are in surplus that are already on the rack that get burned there or incinerated because they don't get sold. Too much, there's already too much. So um, I'm wondering about the industry if, um, looking at a model of service whereby you take a higher priced good and you, you know, and there are businesses doing this, but you start bringing in a culture of repair, not just, again, a company coming in and using the idea of circularity as another form of centralizing wealth and power, but to think about decentralizing the process of making sure clothing circulates in a community. Like we always say like local dollars, you want a dollar to circulate as much as possible. The most beautiful prosperous communities are where currency circulates over and over and over again in that community and does not get extracted out. Clothing is a similar, it's a currency. How can you keep it circulating in the community for as long as possible? What are the beautiful strategies that we've been missing because we've move so quickly into the idea of disposability, but what are the beautiful ways of keeping the clothing in play through trading that clothing together freely, taking the commodification out? But could some of these smaller brands who have a focus on their community or even large brands, I don't know what their strategy would be, but the idea of hosting the clothing swap, hosting, we hosted a mending bar at a design school in San Francisco. People came and drank some beer and sewed their buttons and changed their hemlines. You know, we rolled sewing machines in and needles and threads so that the culture of repair became a true culture. And so service, the service there was creating the bar and getting the machines and the tools, but the experience was people sitting around and talking to each other and having a good time connecting socially while keeping their clothes in play. And then people started trading their clothing People started putting on each other's pieces. We um, put a, a photo shoot together. We brought a, a photographer that we work with. So she took photos of everyone's pieces and they got a photo of their mended piece. Um, so we can slow fast fashion down. And I don't think all the business models should be, nor should we be incentivizing the big companies just to put boxes in their stores here, come back and get a discount on your next thing. Like we shouldn't use circularity as an excuse to grow this system. We need systems that slow the whole thing down and change the consumption model so that maybe a higher priced good that's 100% natural fiber 
has a way longer arc of time. So if you amortize the cost of it, it actually is saving you money. My great grandmother said, I'm too poor to buy cheap. Like I can't afford cheap. It's crazy. What are you doing? It's going to fall apart. <laughs> so if we have this, that adage, if we take that forward and we say, well, people don't have enough money up front. So can you like slowly make a payment on that thing that's a little higher price? That's already in existence. Some of the brands I know and love allow you to pay $15 a month. And after, you know, four months, you own it. Um, that's another way we could help. But I think we have to create services, experiences, decentralize the idea of circularity. And maybe some of these brands will also find somewhat of a profit model in, in some of that. Um, I, I don't, I'm not all for finding ways to profiteer off a degrowth model, but you know, we all, <laughs> there might be strategies that are still in service to the social repair work and the fabric repair work that we all have at hand. Yeah. I love the story of that event. And I've been to similar ones myself. I wish that there was a bit more of a culture, especially on the masculine side of things in, in interacting with clothing and repair and stuff. And I know that there is in other cultures and I, it's something that I look forward to reconnecting with. I'm fortunate that both my partner and her mother know how to sew and are often mending things that I destroy. <laughs> but it, it seems like re, reinvigorating the interaction and the process of the things that we own can more than justify the, the higher price, like you were mentioning, when you look at it as something that is an investment, as much as you would perhaps, you know, investing in a house or a piece of land, something that's going to be a major presence in a longer portion of your life, rather than something that you kind of uh, go through, through your whims and through your wants, and is transitory in that process as well. Um, which, which makes me wonder, because of all of the positive aspects of reconnecting with these things, and I know for myself too, I value things more when I spend more money on them. And I've certainly heard that adage of not being wealthy enough to buy cheap things certainly applies for tools as well, since my background's more in construction. <laughs> but really applies to tools. Yes. Definitely <laughs> applies to tools. But it, it really does. It has very broad appeal and broad uh, application. And it, this makes me wonder, like, what are some of the biggest roadblocks? What are some of the biggest hurdles for the expansion of regenerative textiles and fashion? Where are you feeling the most pushback? I just, oh, oh, yep. <laughs> can I go? Um, you can go. Go ahead, Rebecca. No, no, no. no. Oh, if, if you want to think more about it, I can jump in. No, no, I mean, I'm happy. So, um, I mean, basically, um, I think there are two sides, right? One is like market so well, there's one side uh, that is market incentives and we have their um, like consumer demands, but also like other, you know, like set of incentives around policy and, you know, and so when it comes to consumers, definitely we are talking about price points, but like, again, it's what Rebecca was saying and you were saying, you know, it's, we just need to step away from this culture that has been fed into us of like, we need to have so many different things, you know, and go back to actually having a few things that we really treasure and that we want to keep for life. But, um, but it's, it's very difficult for consumers alone to make that mindset switch, you know, like taking into account all of market dynamics. And I think, you know, effectively the problem today with fashion is that 
it's much more profitable for a brand to to not be regenerative and to be very damaging than to actually take responsibility for their supply chain and take responsibility for the products that they put out on the world. Because that's also a, a really important component for all companies in the world, not only talking about you know fashion, but like companies are not taking responsibility for what they put out, you know, like uh, responsibilities eventually, you know, passed on to the consumer and then to the government, you know, and this happens in fashion, but it happens also when you buy a bottle of Coke, you know, or like, you know, the, the, the waste that is produced throughout the process is not something that companies are taking responsibility for. And, and that's because like, they don't have to basically, you know, like we, we can get away with not doing that. Um, so I think a really important enabler is, uh, you know, governments stepping up to level the playing field. And this is something that in the UK has been discussed for a while. And for example, um, last year, I don't know, my time is quite fluffy since the pandemic happened. Maybe this was two years ago, but um, a, th there was a vote in parliament to put a tax on fast fashion. And it, it was, for me, an historic moment, you know, like to say like, this makes so much sense because, you know, these companies are damaging the planet and we're all going to have to pay for it. Uh, but it unfortunately wasn't voted, it, it didn't pass. Um, which, so I think, you know, one of the key barriers is the inability to compete evenly. Um, and, and I think for that to happen, there needs to be government intervention, but for government intervention to happen, there needs to be enough citizen support, you know? So there is like a lot that needs to happen around like raising awareness and consumers speaking up and voting with their purchase, but also voting, you know, like writing to their MP and like writing to fashion brands and showing that there is this movement and this traction. Um, and I also, I think there is like another part that I'm sure like Rebecca um, and I mean, you guys at Climate Farmers can really talk about, but it's, making sure that there are there is enough support uh, for you know like when it comes to farmers uh, to be able to make this transition towards um, towards more regenerative um, practices and when in terms of know-how know-how financial support measurement visibility but also that there is enough demand from fashion brands to really like make sure that it financially pays so. Love everything that you said, and I do feel like we're going to need the the role of our citizen. Uh, our role as citizens has to take a very. Um, we need to ramp up because as policies are shaped um, to incentivize regenerative agriculture or smaller scale agriculture, the impediment to the regulatory frameworks that we need and the incentives frameworks that we need has been the role, at least in ag in the United States, of um, Monsanto now owned by Bayer or um, Syngenta or um, DuPont or Dow, like those companies have been shaping farm policy in the United States for quite some time. So as fashion becomes a target for regulation, we have the same issues to be concerned about who is going to be at the table shaping that policy. Our governor recently appointed, I found out a circular economy Roundtable and appointed the largest textile companies to the table. I, the NGOs weren't asked to participate. 
So I have to have a little conversation with our <laughs> state government about what's going on with that. Um, so I do think we are all, you know, there's this huge push to say fashion needs to be regulated, but we have to be extremely careful that we are ready as a society to step up and make those public comments, to get into those halls of power, because those policies could very easily start greasing the wheels for exactly what we don't want. Because that's what's happened in agriculture and fashion could just be another pitfall if we don't step up. Um, so I think, yeah, we need to level the playing field and regulation has a position in that, but regulation has to be, again, carefully watchdogged by many for this to come out in the way that we don't just have ecological collapse and biodiversity collapse and human, you know, bye-bye humans, which is really exactly where we're headed at the moment. So there's work to turn this around, but we can't have the fox guarding the chicken coop in the leveling of the playing field process. Um, the other thing about regenerative ag, um, because farm policy has been shaped so long by conglomerates who make money off of patents and proprietary chemistry, we have a real problem with thoughtful technical assistance providers, meaning who's on the landscape helping the agrarian community make the transitions in, let's say, production agriculture. In the US, unlike the rest of other parts of the world, the US still, the large farms technically are the suppliers of our fiber and food in many cases. At the, we have, do have some pockets of decentralized food and fiber production, but production ag is still predominantly what's here. <laughs> and um, I, I just, I have a problem when I, walk, when I walk into production ag systems and I even have money in my pocket from whatever, a grant or support, to have that farmer make a transition to multi-species cover cropping or compost applications versus synthetic nitrogen use, or let's wean off these chemicals and move here to these other practices, or let's focus on soil biology. There's, there's, there's knowledge gaps. Um, it doesn't mean people aren't trying and there aren't people trying to bridge these deltas but there are functionally knowledge gaps in the system. And that is because our land grant universities in the US have also been predominantly bought. In many cases, the departments are very influenced by private dollars coming from the same companies that are shaping policy. We know all this, but I think it really shows up when you're trying to make change and you don't have the right technical assistance, money might even start rolling in. Like governments are making shifts, right? Governments are starting to do little things, at least at the state and the county level where we are, to incentivize a different form of agriculture. But then who's bridging your knowledge gaps? Because there's like a, a literally, um, as you were saying, like it takes one generation to lose a textile recipe. It can take one generation to lose an understanding of how to do organic agriculture without tilling the soil to pieces. <laughs> um, you know, we have this move to no-till, but we saw, I saw some recent status of like Vermont no-till, like they're seeing so much more herbicide runoff in their streams because no-till is coming with herbicide use in mass. That's not the solution to trying to reduce soil disturbance and build soil carbon. It's not that we then come with herbicides in large quantities to solve for our soil disturbance issues. So again, we just see knowledge gaps so I really, really hope, again, just to summarize, 
we step up as citizens and make sure we're shaping the regulation and incentives policies and making public comments when those opportunities arise, that we're supporting in the United States a different way to bridge the knowledge gap than what the chemical industries have given us. And that we really support each other to have um, solutions that are decentralized, not patented and not just proprietary. Um, yeah. Thanks. Good question. <laughs> okay, so now we've covered all of the bad news. These are the things that are in your way that are causing this to be difficult to implement or to grow. Let's talk about some of the things that have given you hope or inspired you that things are starting to move in the right direction. Aroma, what have you seen in your line of work that has given you that hope? Mm. Um, so to me, what gives me a lot of hope is that now we are talking about regenerative agriculture in fashion um, a lot more, <laughs> not a lot, you know, in objective terms, we should talk about it much more, but a lot more. And uh, I feel like this has been a change and I would love to, to hear from you, Rebecca, when do you think, you know, you, you saw this change, but to me really, I've seen a massive change in the last two years, which is since we've been working on it. And I don't know if it's like I'm looking harder at it, but really when, when we started at Trace, it was very difficult to find people holding this conversation. Fibershed, I would say was the only one. Um, and it suddenly uh, in, the, in the last years, uh, thanks to the work of like the Savory Institute and some very big fashion brands, obviously Patagonia, some very big fashion brands are starting this conversation of how they can embed, you know, like um, environmental regeneration and regenerative agriculture in their supply chains. And, and I think that's really important because, you know, ultimately they are the people that have the microphone in a lot of occasions. And, a, you know, just putting this in the conversation and their ability to reach consumers with this message is really important because, I mean, we here all uh, understand, you know, that uh, nature-based solutions are key to fighting climate change and that regenerative agriculture has a very important role. But most of the, of, of, of the mindset and the conversation around sustainability is in damaging less and not in actually healing and repairing. And the fact that we are starting to see, you know, like in different industries, uh, these pockets and these like organizations that are really amplifying um, the, you know, the, the potential of regenerative agriculture and the potential to um, heal our planet, it's, it gives me so much hope, you know? It just feels like there is momentum uh, and, and lots of good things can happen from this. Is like, as Rebecca is saying, if we, if we get the right people around the table and we, and we make sure that we get the right policies around the table. Nicely said. I agree. We've got a lot of traction that's starting to build with conversations like this, where we're bridging regenerative ag and fashion. I mean, hmm. these are new conversations. Um, I mean, some you'll see some brands who are kind of coming out the gate with with claims and comments and and work. And it, you know, I see all of it as a gradient. Like we. We just need to keep pushing on the leading edge of the work all the time. And hopefully, um, hopefully, you know, just a, a few good players keep being really good role models for what this can look like. Um, we can keep setting the foundations for everyone to kind of 
jump on board who may not have been having the privilege to pay enough attention to the sector, which would be the wearer in most cases. Um, they don't have the time. They are going to need to trust, you know, some of the new transparency tools that we bring in place and localize, localize, localize. So you can walk in those fields and understand what's happening. The distance between the wearer and the field um, is, a, is a chasm that needs to be bridged because ultimately we need to have sensitivity for how these things are grown and produced. Um, but anyway, yeah, are, are we, should I be answering anything in the chat? There's some brilliant questions in here. I've There's been... <laughs> some really good questions in here and we're going to start with them real soon. I want to ask one last question before we turn it over to listener questions. And that is, how can people who are not directly involved in the fashion industry or the textile or the farming industry help to move the needle in the right direction in this entire, <laughs> this entire aspect of our culture? Rebecca? Oh, how to move the needle if you're not already involved in the industry. Um, yeah. Well, I think right now there's opportunities to, again, just keep your clothing in play. So whatever you're wearing, um, there's a, a wonderful um, Tiwa Pueblo tribal elder or leader, I would say. He's not quite yet an elder. Um, uh, has, and so anyway, I was just hearing stories about cotton production in the Southwest before the land was um, colonized and clothing made of this cotton was considered sacred um, and clothing had a sentience to it. And I've told this story before, but I, I, I keep coming back to this idea that we aren't putting enough attention and respect into the actual garments that they're protecting us, that they're keeping us uh, warm and <laughs> in comfortable environments that we can have these social engagements without being unclothed. I mean, these fundamental, they, they seem like laughable realities, but really textile is shelter. And so I think um, part of it is just, if everyone kind of thanks their clothing, like a little gratitude for the service that the clothing offers, <laughs> I think that's the indigenous heartbeat, you know, start with gratitude, start with thanks for whatever clothing you have, regardless of its fiber content and um, work to keep it in play. And then from there, if you buy new um, or secondhand, you know, look, even in the secondhand market, look for clothing that's 100% natural so that those fibers, you know, the more used uh, plastic garment is, the more it fragments those fibers into the ecosystem. So even when you're buying secondhand, look for natural. If you can foster clothing swaps in your community to keep clothing in play. And then lastly, if you buy new and you have that opportunity and privilege, then look for people you can support in your home community. And if you can't support people in your home community or brands that are somewhat local and transparent to you, and you have to go to the certification body, I mean, definitely it's, it's helpful to look for an organic certification. I'm not gonna say that that's not helpful, but GOTS, Global Organic Trade Certification, there's, you know, it's better than, it's the best we have. So we'll just go with that. <laughs> and we have a lot of work to do um, on certifications and transparency as a whole. Um, but those would be my recommends. Yeah, and I would echo most of that. Uh, I think I think what fashion offers us is that really the possibility that everybody can get engaged in moving the needle because we all wear clothes. 
you know, as far as I know. Um, so it's it's really about, I think, first reconnecting because often, you know, we, we think of, oh, I'll just buy better, no? But yeah, it's not about buying, but like first reconnecting with our wardrobe, what we have at home. There is a, a really cool organization. They are actually like a student collective who prepares um, um, like a wardrobe audit tool that is called like Closed Mass Index. And it's these little templates that you sit with in front of your wardrobe and you really try to understand what's in there, you know, and like understand the journeys behind the products and you take the labels and you understand what they are made of and you, and you understand where they were made of. And I went through that actually not so long ago and it was such an empowering thing because it gave me a lot of information, most of it pretty unpleasant, about what was sitting in my wardrobe, but also it really recommitted me to, to just honoring my clothes and keeping them in use for as long as possible. And it also taught me what is it that is in my wardrobe that is actually really damaging because it's, you know, it's synthetic fibers and I need to be careful about how I wash them and I need to be careful about how I dispose of them because they are effectively, you know, like shedding microfibers forever. So I think understanding our clothes help us understand how to take care of them so we can minimize the impact that they are having on the environment now. And also it can extend their life cycle, you know? And I think it's very beautiful to start learning again, understand, because many of us don't know, you know, like how, how, how to wash your clothes, you know, in the best way to really extend their life and, and minimize the impact. So I think it's first connecting with what you have at home and then really looking to different ways of interacting with this industry, no? So avoiding to buy new products uh, as much as possible, which really should be always. Uh, like I own a fashion brand, but I don't buy new clothes since like three years ago. Um, and, but like when, and, and when you want to buy something new, really vote with your dollar, you know, like uh, vote and, and go with brands that align with your values. And I think there's something really powerful about like, I don't know, connecting our, our, our values with, uh, sort of correcting our actions with our values. Um, and it's quite empowering to know like, you know, I've supported this brand that, that I think is very cool. And, and now I have a piece that represents this. It's like building a collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> of stories, you know? Yeah. Right, a set of stories and memories yeah. and meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like with all these purchases and these decisions, you are building a collection. It's a matter of what kind of collection do you want to build? Yeah. And yeah. what does that, that collection represent? What does it say about you and your priorities and what you invest in? Because as we covered in just a small part here, there are effects to all of these decisions at many, many stages of the process before it gets to you and certainly before it goes on to uh, decompose or you know an afterlife uh, on its own. Yeah. Now, oh, and sorry, Oliver. Uh, one last let's thing. hand things over. Oh, sorry, no, sorry no, one one last thing that I wanted to mention is also, and this really depends on how much we each want to get engaged. But you know, my journey is that I started going down that tunnel and I ended up here. So you know, like there's always like when we want to go the extra step. There are so many you know options to really demand transparency and demand change from brands. And I do think that makes a big difference. So for example, Fashion Revolution on their website has a template where, you know, it just takes you two seconds to go pick your brand and it sends them an email 
you know, like saying like, I want to know who made my clothes, you know, and like what's behind my clothes. And I think like the more that brands get these requests from, from customers or potential customers, the more they will understand that really, you know, their model needs to change. And, and you know, there, there is a template for that, but there's always, you know, the possibility of emailing a brand and being like, listen, I really like this piece, but I want to understand what's it made of or where was it made. And yeah, and I think that's cool as consumers that we take that extra step. Absolutely. Great. Fantastic. Well, look, there's so much more that we can cover here, but I want to hand it over to the listeners. And before we go to them, I'd also like to encourage our participants to check out the video replay on Climate Farmers YouTube channel shortly after this call. And also to look out for the broadcast of this panel discussion on the Regenerative Skills podcast, where along with the weekly episodes that I publish, our expert panel discussions will come out once a month. Our previous one on regenerative agriculture is coming out this week. Um, if we're not able to get to your questions this time, or if you're watching the recorded version later on, just remember that the conversation will continue on our Mighty Networks page. And I'm putting that link in the chat now. And also, of course, if you rewatch this later on YouTube, we'll have the link in the show notes below. Thanks again to our two panelists, Rebecca Burgess and Arroa Alvarez Fernandez, who are both working tirelessly to create a healthier and more equitable fashion and textile industry around the world. I highly recommend that you check out their work. You can find Rebecca's company at fibershed.org and Arroa's at thetracecollective.com. And a special thank you to the team at Climate Farmers for organizing the event and to all the wonderful people who showed up and participated in the chat. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experienced perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints that are out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. It will always be free to join. All you have to do is follow the links to our Discord on the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website. The benefit of joining through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. Now this week's question, which we'll be discussing on the forum is, do you know of any textile producers in your own local area? And where do they source their material and sell their products? In my area, for example, around Barcelona, this area actually has quite a long textile manufacturing history. Throughout the 1800s and the turn of the century, there were factories that were key economies for many communities in Catalonia. And in my own town of Santa Laulia de Rosana, the local community center is actually a renovated old textile factory that was shut down in the 60s, which is why it's still called La Fabrica. Now I'm still learning about materials and techniques that are traditional to this area, but it's a great window into the history of land use and industries for this part of Spain where I live. There are so many ways to positively affect the production and consumption systems that we participate in, and I can't wait to hear about what the fiber and fashion cultures of your own area are like. So don't forget, you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests in the forum as well. Well, that's our show this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, everybody.